Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail, two Christian guys talking about news, culture, and the things that matter to you. And I am here with my co-commissar once again, Jason. Hey, Jason, how are you? Hey, Tim, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I think I'm doing much better than it sounds like your chicken sandwich was yesterday. Oh, yeah, well, we'll get to that. I, you know, I went back to the McDonald's. I tried to get a crispy chicken deluxe, and it wasn't crispy, Tim. Oh, I hate that. I know it's a first world problem, but it needs to be crispy. And I know you had thoughts on crispiness that you'd like to share with the audience as well. Yeah, yeah. My problem, whenever I get something that is called crispy and it isn't, is I think, have they undercooked it? And I immediately start thinking about the unpleasantness of past food poisoning experiences, and and it just ruins it. It doesn't matter if it's perfectly fine. It doesn't matter if it was well cooked and it's just been under the, the heat warming light too long. All I can think of is is this chicken done? And uh, I just chicken out at that point. <laughs> is this chicken done or the lack thereof? And therefore am I done by eating it? <laughs> yeah. It's time to go to chicken run and get out of there. And, and we, we had a talk before we went on the air about how we like our bacon. And you're a little, you're a little cautious about bacon though, aren't you? For the same reason. Same reason. Yeah. I, I've had several experiences uh, particularly with pork, uh, of food poisoning. And for our listeners that have had that experience, I don't need to say anything more. You're already, you're already feeling it. But if you haven't, let me just say that if you have an encounter with undercooked pork, the next few days are, are plenty of opportunities for reminiscing about that undercooked pork. And it, it, it just doesn't worth it. I, I avoid pork like the plague generally when I'm out and about, unless, unless it's something like ham that's already been cured and I, I feel pretty safe about it. Occasionally bacon. Uh, I, I feel better about bacon. Most places do seem to know how to cook bacon. Uh, but we do have pretty strong opinions on how bacon should be cooked, don't we? I, I tend to burn my bacon. There needs to be blackness. There needs to be crispness. I love that burnt flavor of, of bacon. So um, yeah. other people don't like it that way. There's people in this world that like chew, chewy bacon. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Do we on the same planet and then i remember that jesus loves even the people who eat chewy bacon so um yeah we, we don't want to forget that but they are misguided i mean clearly bacon should be crispy you should bite into it and it should crumble deeply yes the chewy bacon people are deeply misguided but you know we pray for everyone on the show so we'll pray for them too <laughs> yeah may they uh someday come to know true bacon <laughs> Yeah. So now that we've now that we've had our convocation at the one true church of bacon, <laughs> um, we have other exciting topics today, and we can't wait to tell you about it. So. Yeah, we're we're nowhere near Dune, uh, so we're actually going to talk about Dune. Uh, Jason, you went and saw the brand new Dune movie, and and I have to say, I have not been initialized at all into the world of Dune. I, I, I know it's sci-fi. That's about it. So why don't you tell us about the new movie? And for those of us that have no idea what we're talking about on Dune, help us to understand, should we go see this movie? Is this where we should start if we want to learn about Dune? Well, the first part of my review, this is going to come with my highest possible recommendation. This was a cinematic masterpiece of visual feast. And I've heard that said in other quarters as well. And it was totally true. I came in with absurdly high expectations. And the only thing that I felt when I left the theater is that I want to see part two right now. So um, that is where I was at with Dune. 
I'm excited for the second part. I was a Dune uh, junkie. I've read the book lots of times. I've seen the 1984 adaptation of David Lynch, Kyle McLaughlin, starring in the main role. Uh, Francesca Annis as the Lady Jessica in in that production. Uh, Patrick Stewart as Gurney Halleck in that original production. So... Uh, I'm a, I'm a Dune junkie. Uh, I knew that, uh, I knew that the director is also a Dune junkie. He loved it as well. So, and he, he did well. I'm not going to ruin anything. Uh, but if you know the story, you know the story already. So, and if you don't, you should go see it because it's a great, um, I had a friend, I'm going to do a shout out here. Uh, my friend KB Hoyle, she is an author, a young adult author, fantasy author. Um, and she said it's a coming of age story, um, for a piece that she did over at Christ in pop culture. So, um, and it is that it is very much a coming of age story, but it's not this, it's not like a cutesy, uh, you know, like a my girl coming of age story. It, it's a bit dark. Um, but that follows the book. And so, it very, it very faithfully follows the book by Frank Herbert. Um, I think fans of the book will love these movies, um, and I encourage you to go see it. Tim doesn't have anything to say, I guess, because uh, he hadn't seen it, but he should. You should. I will uh, have to make it a point to be inducted into the realm. If you haven't seen it, what's your feeling on seeing the movie before the book or, the, or reading the book before the movie? Uh, generally speaking, on anything that that I really love the book on. My sense has been you should always read the book before you watch the movie version of it. But what, what's your take on this? The the book is, even though the book is a classic, and it usually, I said off the air, it usually makes the BBC's list of great literature, um, and rightly so. The book has all these arcane details from, from the world and sort of leaves, it just throws you right into the fire when you read the book. And so it can be a little bit confusing. What I would recommend people do, actually, is get a hold of the 1984 film adaptation directed by David Lynch and go from there. And the, the soundtrack is by Toto, the rock band Toto from the 80s. It's gorgeous. Sting is in the film, you know, like it's it's very 80s in some ways, but it helps you like kind of understand what's going on. And it there's there's not as much stuff like in a random whisper that you didn't necessarily hear which can happen with the new movie so i would watch the 84 adaptation then i would read the book and then i would see the new film got it that does seem to be something we're seeing more in theater there's this push to have whispered dialogue quite a bit wouldn't you say yeah and and as a person with a slight hearing impairment anyway it drives me crazy so um i watch uh this is a random thought but i watch everything with subtitles now my netflix and my hulu and and all the other things so um yeah i don't like that but i guess we'll have to get over it because they're doing it more and more yeah i I keep thinking i need to get one of those sound bars they have for a television i I just have the little built-in speakers and and they point downward and then i have other stuff on on the the table the uh the tv sitting on so by the time it gets past all that uh half the whisper is often lost uh it's clearly meant for a really great sound setup where where you're not missing anything and it's not very friendly to less than ideal sound setups at home certainly right and 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 that's an interesting point because visually um it's not intimate at all but in terms of the story it's very intimate it's about this young man and it's about the the young man and his mother and coming coming of age as 
as the son of his mother and his father. Um, and, and that's a different way. I think in a certain way, that's a different way to look at the story. Mm-hmm. Although it was always, our, our listeners will appreciate this. It It is a Messiah story. That's that's what it is. Um, but it doesn't necessarily end as happily as the Messiah story to end them all. That's where it's going and that's where it's coming from. And uh, So in that sense, I think Christians will find it extremely appealing, personally. Well, um, that's something for all of us who are less aware of it to dig into. It certainly seems to have captured the attention of, of pop culture. I, I, I see a lot of people mentioning Dune. So maybe now it's a good time for all of us who haven't already to, to do so. In the meantime, while we're searching for time for that, we should mention our first sponsor, which is Open for Business. And Open for Business, this is going to sound like the least exciting feature ever, but Open for Business now has search. You can search our archive. And that feature has been on my to-do list of features for the site for, oh, I don't know, 17 years or so. (laughs) And it's finally on. It took a little time, but it is finally on. And here's where it's so great. Open for Business is celebrating its 20th anniversary. We have a huge back catalog of, of articles, many of which are, are not necessarily only relevant in a particular moment in time. And so go over, take a look at Open for Business if you haven't in the past. Check out not only the current articles, but the wide variety of things we've written over the last two decades. And if you're looking for something in particular, you can now finally search it. Uh, you don't have to just search in vain. You don't have to go over to Google and somehow try to find it on Open for Business. Yes, yes, I am advertising the feature that almost every website since the turn of the millennia has had, but it's now an open for business. You can search our archive and check out, while you're there, our weekly entries from myself, Jason, and Dennis E. Powell, www.ofb.biz. about you, Jason, but I found last week's election coverage almost as exciting, at least as a midterm, if not a presidential election. It usually seems like these off years that aren't either a midterm or a presidential year are, are usually pretty dry, but pr- maybe it's just the w- weirdness of the last couple of years, but it felt big. It felt substantial, and, and the results were quite interesting. What do you make of them? Yeah, I have to say I was mildly surprised, even though um, a lot of the political experts said, you know, uh, the Republicans tend to do better in these really off-year elections uh, for governor in Virginia. Uh, but I was surprised. Uh, Glenn Young- Youngkin came out with the victory there in Virginia, um, and he a couple of the different pieces have made note of the fact that he he didn't embrace the former president, but he didn't uh, he didn't shut him down either. So he kind of took a middle approach, and uh, that kind of worked for him. And then on the other side, um, Terry McAuliffe, the former governor, Terry McAuliffe, he uh, he wanted to uh, run it like it was the the last election. So he was kind of running against uh, President Trump and President Trump's themes. And it seems as though um, the voters have, in a sense, moved on past all that. So it didn't really work. So uh, Youngkin came out with the victory. I am mildly surprised, although I will say 
to the national press that I don't think it's generalizable to what will happen in the midterms or to the next presidential election. Because um, a lot of times you see results and then the midterms and the next presidential election are utterly opposite of what happened in those elections. So I think there's a little bit too much hyperventilating about what the results would mean, but it does mean that they didn't want Terry McAuliffe again. That's that's what it means. So I think, you know, they need the Democratic Party, uh, even though they got a, the gift, a gift in the former president, they need they need stuff to run on. Uh, and they need to stop running against uh, the 45th president because it's not going to keep working forever. And they're finding that out. It, it's always, a, of course, a favorite of the party that was in the opposition to spend the first years of their majority attacking the the former majority. But it does seem like, I mean, arguably, some of what we saw last year was so-called Trump fatigue, where, where people were just tired of the drama to begin with. And it's not necessarily going to help by continuing to bring it up, it seems like, in that regard. I might differ slightly in that I, I do wonder if this is a bit of a picture of a, a wider trend or, or maybe an indicator, maybe more than that. I, I think arguably the United States is a, a centrist country. Um, you know, you hear people trying to argue, is it really center right? Is it center left? But I think in any case, it is a relatively centrist country at this point where we're not really on the extremes. And to me, I, I have to think that some of this is the fact that whether or not they're actually the ones in power, it does seem like the, the progressive side of the, the Democratic Party has been the part that has the big microphone, much like the, the MAGA faction of the Republican Party has been the side with the big microphone. And I, I, I felt like James Carville really put his finger on it last week when he pointed to, to that as the issue for the Democrats here is that if you allow the conversation to basically be revolving around the AOCs and such of the party, I think you're going to run into trouble in a lot of the country who probably would prefer Democrats that look more like Joe Manchin than uh, Ocasio-Cortez. I think it may well be a reaction against uh, the education establishment because a lot of the, the ideology that's taught in a public school, uh, now whether some of those criticisms from Yunkin uh, were fair about CRT and those types of things is, is another thing. But um, pe- people don't like to be told that, that America is irretrievably broken, and they don't like to be told that they're, they're bad parents that are completely messing it up. So I think maybe a little rebellion against the education establishment is there. Yes. And so that'll be really interesting to see how that turns out. And somebody brought this up, you know, on social media, and it was about, uh, it was both things. It was what should be taught in school um, and uh, whether parents should have the choice in how to educate their children. Uh, And there's different ways to go about that. But I said, you know, I don't want to consider both of those questions as the same thing. So we can have a debate about what should be taught in a public school and then we could have a separate question about whether or not public education should exist. Uh, and I could have a different answer to both of those questions. They don't have to be tied into one thing. But I think there's a lot of cultural um cultural backlash to some of the things that go on in, say, progressive establishment uh, education areas, elite education areas. Right. 
Yeah, and, and you know, this is where, and I'd, I'd love to see our, our political dialogue change in general, because we, we constantly seem to be looking for loopholes. Like, I, I have heard the response to Youngkin's criticism of CRT and such. The response to that's been, well, no one's teaching CRT in school, and they'll usually rattle off several of the big CRT authors that would be used in a college and say, well, none of these people are being taught in the public school. It seems to me that's not the most helpful response, because... The big issue is our materials that are influenced by the ideology behind CRT being taught in school or not. And and I I think we can say at that level, clearly, yes, those materials are showing up. And and you would expect them to show up. Because if that's what's being taught in a college setting, it's certainly very present there. Various critical theories, not just critical race theory, have been very present in academia for decades. Then naturally, the people writing some of the materials that then go into high school or middle school or elementary school are going to be influenced by this. And to me, the the question needs to be less about technically, is this material certified CRT, whatever we'd want to make that? And are these things that are being taught dramatically different from the way traditionally people have approached these topics? Are they falling into the general realm of critical theory more broadly? And, and then have a discussion once we admit that they really are there, is this good or bad? And how can we balance it by not necessarily saying, well, we shouldn't teach about um, racism that showed up in the country. Obviously, we need to do that. But having a genuine discussion is the most helpful way to do it using materials that have been influenced by this particular realm of thought. Because there are a lot of people that would love to deal with the the racism that's shown up in the country, but don't necessarily buy into the Marxist ideology, and I'm not using that as a slam, but rather as just a honest label of the worldview that some of these materials are, are being shaped by. And it doesn't have to be um, just a kind of partisan critique to say that. It, there, there are genuine good faith Marxist materials at times, or materials that doubt absolute truth, or materials that that emphasize narrative over reality and make narrative into reality, all these sorts of things that are part of that critical theory orbit. And I think it's unhelpful when the response to someone like Youngkin ends up being, well, show us where, here's a list of CRT authors, show us where one of these authors is being taught in the school, and if it's not, then you're just being dishonest, and then it, then we don't get to have the conversation. And I think that may be going back to where Carville is pointing to, what's led to the results last week. Because people, they, they know what their kids are bringing home. They know that they're uncomfortable with some of it. And it's not because they're all a bunch of redneck racists. There, there's people that just don't necessarily agree with the general ideology, regardless of race, that's being built into some of these materials. And we need to be able to have a discussion without just always pulling out angry, torch-bearing attacks against people. Yeah. And as long as we can't, I think there's going to be a backlash. My my critique of this is along the lines, it's epistemic and philosophical. If you're you're teaching kids about race in America, but but it means philosophically that uh, that they or their parents or their teachers uh, cannot have access to reason or are shut off from the truth by their alleged uh, privilege, let's say, then uh, that's where we're going to have a problem. And I think that's where the critique lands. Because if you say, well, we don't need 
you know, we don't need to learn about any of these old authors. We don't need to learn about the founders. We don't need to learn about Plato and Aristotle because they're old white men, so to speak. Then that's when you start getting into, okay, uh, it may not be CRT trademark wise, but it, it's in the neighborhood of stuff that can be destructive. Because if we can't know anything by reason alone, then, then dialogue is not actually possible. And then it's just a it's just a power grab. So right. Who has the power? Who can get the power? Um, and what means can they use? Uh, you know, you heard some critique uh, calling uh, the the reaction against these protests. Though they're called struggle sessions, and that would be when you're taken to a you know a communist re-education room <laughs> somewhere and and berated until you until you comply. So nobody wants to just be told that. Well, because of your privilege and position, you have no access to reality and you're just wrong and you need to sit over here and be subservient to whoever else. Um, and I think that's the nature of the concerns with right. CRT. Even if, it, even if it doesn't land all the way, um, that's the nature of the concerns. And I have some sympathy there. I have to be honest. I have some sympathy there. Yeah, it, it really worries me. And, I, and there's an extent to this that I'm seeing it on both sides of the partisan aisle where, ironically, uh, as the left is promoting more of this narrative, non-rational approach to things, so too is the right. And, and certainly you can see that in a lot of the debates we have now where you have the progressive left and, and they have the this set of different narratives and you can't critique them unless you're a part of that given narrative. But then on the, on the right then, that's also become the shield in much of uh, of the MAGA world where you're in a particular narrative and it doesn't matter if you there are are facts that contradict it because it fits the narrative. And so it's really, that's where I kind of wish both sides would wake up because both sides are buying into this, this rejection of reason that you're talking about. When it bothers me, for example, that schools are teaching this and some of it's on, on the progressive side, I would hope that a, a reasonable progressive person could look at it and say, well, that's not going to help us because it also is essentially giving permission then for the people on the right to, to flee reason Likewise, and it only breaks down dialogue further. And, and then on the right, as they critique CRT, I'd hope those folks would say, well, we need to embrace reason on our side and not just pick up a different narrative to reject it. Uh, because what we're doing is we just end up then in a place where communication is utterly impossible and we just have a bunch of angry people. Yeah, that's right. I agree. I think I think reason is our is our refuge and we should uphold reason and our access to reason as the way forward in dialogue. That's that's how I'm going to summar summarize all that. And I think that pretty much summarizes what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so there we go. Just one last bit to note before we move on. John Luhan, I believe is his name. He he won Texas House District 118. It, it garnered some attention because it's a 75% Hispanic district that went red over the election last week as well. And I think that's something that there's been a little talk of over the last year after the 2020 uh, presidential election as well. It doesn't seem all that surprising, but it's still interesting because the Democrats have spent a great deal of time trying to build up the Hispanic base. And it seems like there's at least a part of that base that's not going their direction. Yeah, that's right. And I I think some of that has been building for a long time. Uh, did you ever see, this is a little off the wall, but did you ever see um, Stand and Deliver with Edward James Olmos? No. And it and it's basically a biography of this man named Jaime Escalante, and he was a school teacher um, in 
I think, yeah, it was East Central L.A. And he started an AP um, an AP calculus program in his school. And there was this is the early 80s, and there was all this stuff of, oh, these kids can't learn. They're from these really rough neighborhoods, and they've got broken families, and so on and so forth. You're just going to raise their hopes and then crush them. And, and um, obviously, it didn't work that way. And, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people came out of that, that high school taught by Mr. Escalante, and they went on to great careers and, you know, astrophysics physics and whatever else that is that is the hispanic culture that hard work family you do what you can you you work hard you make your own way no one's going to hand it to you kind of a thing that's the part that uh among the democrats if there's this attitude that says a kind of person will vote for us because they're a person of color uh that ideology is going to miss because escalante wasn't like that a lot of people who admired him are not like that in those communities and i think that's what you're seeing is they don't They don't consider themselves oppressed or they have nowhere to go. They're not, uh, they don't feel like they're stuck. You know, they want to work hard. They want to stay close to their families. They want to recognize the reality of the world that we live in and not try to make a different world. And so I'm not surprised uh, that some of those people are going Republican. Yeah, interesting trend. Something we'll definitely have to talk about more as we look towards the midterms next year. While we're on the subject of politics, Jason, you promised our listeners that we were going to return to a subject last time. And so we certainly want to be a podcast that keeps our promises, don't we? Yeah, that's right. There's no broken promises on this podcast. So read my lips. What's the topic? Uh, We're going to continue the minimum wage discussion that we started in the last episode. So maybe you can give the listeners a little recap of what we said in the previous episode. Yeah, just to briefly recap, we were discussing minimum wage at a very broad level. Jason, you mentioned how long it had been since the minimum wage had been changed here in the United States. I believe you said a quarter century. Um, I brought up some concern with tinkering with it simply because it seems like the wages are adjusting by themselves because of market pressures right now, because people are saying, I don't want to do this job or that job unless you pay me more for it. And so we're seeing wages actually rising quite rapidly at the moment. And so we, we, we explored that. But where I, I think you and I were both hoping to go is sort of center this around a discussion on what is a just wage. And particularly as Christians, what does it look like to talk about treating people justly when it comes to wages? So maybe you want to, to run with that. What I have in mind and the Christian philosophical tradition has in mind when they talk about a just wage is one wage earner supporting uh, supporting a, a spouse and two children, at least. So a family of four, at least, on one income, uh, supporting itself. And that's a just wage. So and, and what I'm going to argue for is, yes, the market uh, may be adjusting to reflect uh, upward pressure on wages, and rightly so. But it is the political authority that has, I would say, the primary responsibility for the common good in this respect. And so the market, uh, or markets plural, as it were, may not um, act definitively or quickly enough to address some of these concerns. And what we see is that if you don't have an education in this society, in some respect, you're going to be struggling. And you've been struggling. If you don't have an education, uh, if you didn't go to trade school and acquire a specialized skill, 
then you're getting left behind. And that's when we talk about the minimum wage, we're talking about jobs that where people don't have uh, that education or those specialized skills. So what are you going to do for those people? I I think that's an an important point you raise, because obviously there's a great deal of need for people in professional trade. So often the the rejoinder to to um, the minimum wage discussion is there's plenty of good jobs out there that aren't being filled, but certainly it's not the sort of thing that you can just acquire overnight. But it seems to me that there's two complications with using a increase in minimum wage, especially a national one, to solve that. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on these two points, Jason. One, I've heard a lot of people raise, and I think this is a legitimate issue. What about the sorts of jobs that many people get as their first job as a teenager? They're not trying to support a spouse, much less kids. They're trying to get some job experience, maybe earn some cash, buy a, you know, buy a used car, get insurance for it, go out to the movies, dates, what what have you. Um, you know, quite frequently, if you go to say McDonald's, that's often the majority of the workers you run into there. And is that necessarily? Do do you need to provide a quote unquote just wage where you can support a whole family to the sixteen year old working at McDonald's? And if not, how do you deal with that if you raise the minimum wage too substantially? Second point sort of tied into that is that what you need to support a family varies dramatically across the country. So what you could be living fairly well with here in St. Louis, you can't even you can't even rent a studio apartment and eat ramen, say if you're living in San Francisco. So uh, how do you deal with those things sort of on a national level? Well, and I would I would say, look, uh, to go back to the first point about who is holding the minimum wage job, uh, the studies are showing that it's not just teenagers. So what I would say is there's people, you know, people in their 30s with children who are working these jobs. They're fully employed, but it's not enough. And then one of my arguments for, for raising it is um, let's reset the conversation on public assistance, because right now uh, people make all these generalizations about those who are on public assistance. Oh, they're just lazy. Oh, you know, whatever else you want to say related to that. But if, if it were, and granted, it would be slightly harder to get a particular job if it was worth uh, $15 an hour uh, than it is now. Uh, but maybe that's what we need. What do you do with the teenager, though, that traditionally would maybe start out at McDonald's if the job now is priced to support a family of four? Uh, where do those people get their jobs? Well, then maybe I would say that we should create a, n- a new class of job that we call starter job uh, that would be that would be exempt from at least the full pr- provisions of the minimum wage law to some extent. And then what we can do to make it stronger rather than end up like how it does in food service where you can pay someone $2.13 an hour because they're going to live on tips is you should, you should say these people over here, this class of people is not eligible for these jobs. And, and that's what I might do there. And you could give, it's a crazy idea, but you could give tax break in order to make that happen um, for, for, companies to offer starter jobs to teenagers and so forth um, and go from there. But for a full-time job where someone's going to work 40 hours, which is not what most teenagers are even able to do, except maybe in the summer, uh, then there need to be protections and they need to be pulling down a certain amount of money in order to live. And then we could talk about uh, when when is a person using too much public assistance or abusing the system and so on and so forth. But we can't even have, rationally have that conversation because we haven't bridged the gap between 
those with a lot of education and a lot of wealth already and those who do not. Yeah. It seems like a a hard nut to crack, though, um, because I I kind of fear, and and your proposal is an interesting one, but I would fear that it might lead to the same thing that we've run into with health insurance now. Uh, By saying if you have employees that work over a certain number of hours a week, you should provide health care for them. And and maybe from a a philosophical Christian standpoint, we should say, well, that's a, a part of caring for the person, right? So it might be arguably part of a just wage, but what has it actually done is meant that uh, companies and organizations are far more likely to hire part-time work that just skirts that number. And even ironically in academia, where a lot of these ideas originate and you know, politically they would align with a lot of this stuff, what's happened has become all the harder to actually get a full-time position teaching because the universities would rather hire a bunch of adjuncts that work for less and they don't have to provide benefits to. And I kind of wonder if you had a class of starter jobs, if you wouldn't see where companies were just inclined to hire more workers for fewer hours as opposed to to having to move from that starter job position to a much higher wage at 40 hours a week. It's a challenge because it seems like no matter what you try to do, unless you completely box off, here's exactly what you pay everybody, um, and the government has price controls on all, there's going to be probably loopholes. Yeah, that's right. And and to your point, a lot of what I'm arguing for is emerging from uh, Catholic social doctrine. Uh, but ironically, what's funny about that is that the worst offenders of Catholic social doctrine are Catholic institutions. So Catholic schools, Catholic universities, other universities as well, where there's supposed to be uh, respect for the lower class. You don't see this uh, respect for the dignity of adjunct professors and for uh, elementary school teachers in Catholic schools right. and so on and so forth. So it is, it is a challenge. Uh, I guess our point there is that human beings, sinners, will find any possible way to do something other than what they ought to do in some ways. So it's hard to make them not do that. Yeah. This is where I'm, I think, probably deeply influenced by people know that I'm Reformed. I'm not really so much influenced by Reformed 2K theology. Two-Kingdom theology is Lutheran Two-Kingdom theology. But where I really am generally coming at these things with more of a mindset that the the state's job is to restrain evil more than uh, to promote the good, uh, where the church comes in and promotes the good. And I, I have to wonder if we can't avoid some of these issues, if we simply did more teaching as Christians on what it looks like to deal with these things in our areas of influence, whether we're working at a, an organization, we have the ability to, at some level to set wages for people working for us, if we have that. And, and certainly if we own a business, not to think about what can we get away with in society, what would government permit us to do, what loopholes exist, but what is right and pleasing before God. And and it might not solve the problem entirely, but I think it might change the conversation. Right. And, and actually that's one, in one respect where we differ is, is that I would say, yeah, government does exist to promote the good, but it also exists to restrain evil. So probably philosophically, that's where we might differ slightly. But I agree with you that we should think, uh, we should think at, at a local and a personal level first and then try to have as much influence as we can. If we recognize this is what the right thing is in this particular situation as an employer, uh, as someone else who has control of, of things, this is what I'm going to do. Right. And then what the rest of the world decides to do is beyond my sphere. Okay, well, we all need to be thinking along those lines. Yeah, and I think I like that part in that it's something I actually can do, uh, that we can all do, and it often avoids a lot of the unintended consequences. Because 
frankly, government, whether it should be promoting the good or not, I would argue promotes the bad far more than it promotes the good. And even when even our best intentions that we try to implement there often end up getting misused. And and so even if we try to write things in government, and I certainly wouldn't argue that we should just let, you know, government go completely bonkers and, and do all kinds of things that are, are wrong or overlook all kinds of things that are wrong simply because we can. It'd be far better if we as Christians are doing as much of what's pleasing to God as possible and meeting and exceeding the sorts of things that we might want to see in government and not having government have to kind of shove us along. It'd be so much better. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, it's so hard when, like in earlier segments, we we know of government actively promoting things that are evil that that parents and pastors and and other leaders of communities would identify. No, this is evil and this is wrong. Uh, and but even when government tries to do good and they're actively aimed at something good, there is potentially uh, that possibility for abuse. But again, abuse doesn't negate right use either. So there we come back. You know, we'll come back to this. We'll we'll probably come back to this again and again uh, because you and I love to talk about these issues. Yeah, we did. We did promise to touch on one more point which is that subject of automation. And and you and I were batting that around before the show. Why don't we return to automation next time and talk about it more? Because I think it's a a complex subject and it's one that's very hard to come up with like a, a single concrete answer, I tend to think. So let's pick that up next time. Right now we need to talk though about our second sponsor of the show, which incidentally is fully automated. It runs through the wonders of computers pulling in data from the National Weather Service and other great weather sources around the world to provide you with weather, and that's faithtree.com weather desk. You can go to faithtree.com weather desk anytime, day or night, and see what's going on with the weather locally and around the world. You can save your favorite places that you like to check out the weather regularly. You even get a scripture that relates to the weather in the area that you happen to be looking up, and all that happens without the privacy-invading technology that you find at the big weather sites that are constantly tracking you so that you can be the product that they're going to sell you, whatever relates to the, the place that you're looking up weather for weeks afterwards. You don't have to worry about that. You can just get the weather, get a little scriptural inspiration, and then go on with your day. So what should you do? You should check out faithtree.com slash weather. Find out the weather right now, this time of year, especially here in St. Louis, the weather's changing constantly. It's a great time to start using faithtree.com weather. We always do like to spend some time on on the scriptures before we wrap up. Of course, we've been keeping the scriptures in mind on our conversations throughout the episode, as we always try to do. But right now you're reading through the Epistle to Romans once again, and it's such an amazing epistle. Why don't you share with uh, with our listeners what you're seeing in chapter one? I think chapter one is so interesting because, in a sense, those first few chapters, and it, this includes chapter one, uh, God has to give you the bad news before he gives you the good news. Uh, and so that's what that's what Paul's trying to do there is say that that nobody escapes uh, the judgment of of God's moral law uh, and you're going to feel some conviction as you read chapter one. It says he's talking about a certain class of people. And he says three times that the Lord gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. 
and then and then it talks about idolatry and uh, somewhat homosexuality. But again, uh, if we if we want to know the good news about Jesus, and we'll get there in the next few weeks as we continue to explore Romans, we have to know the good news. Uh, we have to know the bad news before we get to the good news. Uh, if you don't, we've said this before. If you don't uh, know that you have a problem, uh, then what is Jesus going to be the answer to? What What is the cross an answer to if you don't know that you have a problem? So Romans 1 is the one that tells us that we have a problem. And yet through Jesus, um, through the justification that is that is wrought by Jesus, then all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, are reconciled to God the Father. So um, it, it's, it's really mind-blowing, that scripture to the Romans, uh, that letter to the Romans, because it shows us that our Lord has been paying attention. Uh, and ever since the garden, when we fell, the Lord has been unfolding his plan to reconcile all of humanity to himself through Christ. So uh, Romans 1 begins with our sin problem. And then as we progress, we get more and more of the joy of exploring uh, Jesus and him undoing that curse, the curse of sin through his work on the cross and his glorious resurrection. I, I think what you were mentioning is just so uh, spot on to what always strikes me about this chapter. It's such a striking chapter. It's such a powerful chapter. Paul just kind of comes out both guns blazing uh, on the problem. And like you said, if we don't know if we don't know the about the problem, if we don't know what's wrong with us, we don't know that we need help. And so the cross doesn't make any sense. And it, as you were saying that, it reminded me of where I'm preaching at the moment. I'm preaching through Luke five and six. And Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees there, and they want to know why Jesus is hanging out with the sinners. And and he has this this phrase that is well known to anyone that spent time in the scriptures, and yet I'm not sure we always think fully about the impact of it. He he says in Luke five thirty one, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And and that. That phrase is so powerful, in part because Jesus is saying this to people who desperately need to be called to repentance, the Pharisees. They, they are sick. But his point there isn't so much that there are some people who aren't spiritually sick who don't really need help, but rather there are people who are so blind to it that it doesn't make any sense to them. And that's the problem with the Pharisees. They're, they're looking at what Jesus is doing, and it doesn't make sense to them. It looks unfaithful because he's hanging around with the so-called sinners because they have covered up their sins so well. They've exchanged the glory of God, as Paul talks about in Romans one twenty two, so opaquely in such a, a, a way that looks so pious, they don't even realize they're sick. And so, like, when Paul talks there about exchanging the glory of God for various idols, they've made their own idols, but they look pious because they look like following God's law. And yet what it really becomes is following their own human pharisaical institutions of the law. And so they they think that they're healthy and they're really sick. And I I think that's what I find so challenging about Romans 1 is, is yes, it's pointing to the people outside the church, certainly, that have exchanged the glory of God for, for various worldly pursuits. But it's a challenge to each of us because our hearts in our sinful capacity that we have are constantly wanting to do that. And it, it, so whenever I read it, it feels like such a challenge to think about in what ways am I exchanging the glory of God for something else? In what ways is, is, is God calling me to repentance uh, right now? And it's just, it, it, it never loses its power. I could read Romans 1 over and over and over again. 
It's just so powerful. Um, I have a story about that. Maybe I'll save it for next week. Uh, it'll kind of drive that point home. Is this a cliffhanger? Yeah, I'm going to leave everybody on a cliffhanger on this because it's too long of a story and I need to, I need some time to spool it out. So we're you're going to have to wait, listeners. You're going to have to wait. That is something that we will do anxiously. I can't wait to hear this story. So next week, of course, we're coming back to automation. We'll also come back to Jason's story that relates to Romans 1. But in the meantime, I hope all of you, if you haven't read Romans 1 in a while, will just go and check it out. It's such a beautiful picture of who God is and the need that we have for the cross of Jesus, the need that we have for God's restoration and the love of God that he actually bothers to tell us that. He doesn't just let us wander off and fall off the cliff, but rather he sends his revelation that we see in Scripture. He sends his Son that that we can be restored from where our own sinful hearts take us. And, and that's truly, truly amazing. Well, Jason, uh, as always, it's a joy to to dig into God's Word and to dig into news and culture that matter to our listeners with you. And I just always hate to hit the end, but here we are. Yep. Uh, see you next time, Tim. Thanks a lot again. I'll look forward to next time. I'll look forward to sharing that also with all of you listening. Thank you for spending some time with us. Remember, if you haven't already, follow us on your favorite podcasting app. Let your friends know about Zippy the Wondersnail. You can just tell them to go to zippythewondersnail.com. And we will see you next time. Next time.